Good morning. It is Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And um, we've been at, we're in a series on the family here at Cornerstone, but I decided for, for today to kind of pause that and talk about the significance of Memorial Day and some of my thoughts on what surrounds that. And um, so let's just ask God's guidance. Father, thank you for so many things, that song gratitude. Um, open our eyes to all that we need to be grateful for, which, which is frankly every breath. And help us to truly grasp what it means to acknowledge that you are the source of every good thing in our lives and be grateful to you. And so we are grateful today, Lord, for your word. We are grateful today for your spirit who guides us. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us minds to think and to ponder and to love you with. And I thank you for the group in this room, the people of God um, in North Lake Tahoe that come together here to, to think and hear about you, Lord. So um, guide us this morning, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. So Memorial Day. Memorial Day started off as being called Decoration Day. Did you know that? Decoration Day, and it was after the Civil War, it was established as a day where you went and decorated tombs. Um, and specifically, the first time it was the tombs in the, in the newly founded Arlington Cemetery. Arlington Cemetery was actually the property of General Robert E. Lee and his wife, and his wife was the granddaughter of George Washington, and they inherited George Washington's land. And because of he being the, the general of the South, part of the consequences was his land was taken away from him and turned into Arlington Cemetery. So on that first decoration day, over 5,000 volunteers decorated 20,000 headstones of people who died in the Civil War. And that has expanded to what today we call Memorial Day. So I want you to think about what a memorial is. One purpose, a memorial is about remembering. So one purpose of remembering the past is to move to action today. So think about that statement. <clears throat> a purpose of remembering the past, set up a memorial, tomorrow is to remember the past in order to set up action for today. We're going to look at some scriptural memorials at the end of the service, at the end of my message. But first I want to read this. I have a friend. His name is Tim. He's my accountant, actually. Um, and Tim sends out these newsletters constantly about, about tax laws and things I'm supposed to be aware of that I read and don't understand much of it. But he asks me if I read them. He actually wants me to get a binder and file them and keep them forever. I throw them in the trash. But don't, don't tell Tim that. Um, but this, he sent out this for Memorial Day, and this little saying here written by a Marine sergeant named Dennis Edward O'Brien. So to remind you, o Memorial Day is about remembering those who died in the military to give us the country we have. Veterans Day is about honoring all veterans, but Memorial Day specifically about those who died. So listen to what Tim sent me here. It is the soldier 
not the reporter who has given us freedom of the press. It is the soldier, not the poet, who has given us freedom of speech. It is the soldier, not the campus organizer, who has given us the freedom to demonstrate. It is the soldier, not the lawyer, who has given us the right to a fair trial. It is the soldier who salutes the flag, who serves under the flag, and whose coffin is draped by the flag, who allows the protester to burn the flag. And when I read those words, and there's more, it really hit me as I'm a, a child of a career military man and who was very patriotic and loved our country. Um, it, really, it really struck me as the importance of remembering what God has given us living in this country. But it also forces us to ask the question, what do we, how do we as Christians fit into American nationalism and patriotism? So I need you to be with me today. I'm going to say some things today that are certainly to ruffle some feathers, maybe even tick a few of you off. It's not my goal. I am, um, I, if you know me, I tend to stay away from politics in the church. And today I'm going to go into it for the qu purpose of asking, answering the question, what is our role as Christians who live in the United States of America and need to be part of the system and to be good citizens. So I ask that you stay, if, if I say something that ruffles your feathers, I want you to stay to the end. You may still have your feathers ruffled, but at least you hear the whole thing. Okay, you with me? Let's set a foundation for moving forward in this conversation. I want to go back to John 18. We did this in the Gospel of John, and this is the, the Jesus talking to Pilate, where he established for us there's two kingdoms that we all live in. There's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And I, I, I did that. I put the kingdom of God above the kingdom of man because it is. In, in Jesus' teaching, and I think all through Bible, the Bible, and it's just common sense. If we belong to the kingdom of God, who is the creator of all things, but yet we are citizens of the kingdom of man, and specifically the United States of America, um, we live in both, technically citizens of both, but how do we divide our allegiance? How do we do this? That's what I want to talk about today. But let's go back to John 18, 33 to 38. John 18, 33 to 38. Let me get there. I should have my Bible open, and I don't, so... Jesus is before Pilate. He's been betrayed by the religious leaders of Israel. And um, Pilate has found no fault in him. Several times Pilate tries to release him, but the crowd won't let him. So let's just interchange here about Jesus being a king. So 33 to 38 of John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Listen, put some, put some irritation into Pilate's voice now. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. 
Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Look at this, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no fault in him. So I'm going to talk from my heart today about this idea of that Jesus established there is a kingdom that he came to bring that is not part of the kingdom that Pilate was a governor of. But yet Jesus grew up in that kingdom of man. And I would suggest Jesus was an excellent citizen in that kingdom of man, of which we are to be also. So I'm going to talk from the heart today. Um, I've written out what I want to say, but I may get lost in it and just be talking. So I hope I make sense. But I'm going to read this right now. So I'll, I'll make, I hope it makes sense. We live in both kingdoms. But we must have our highest allegiance to the kingdom of God and to the purposes of the kingdom of God. Those purposes are founded, according to what Jesus just said, on proclaiming the truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and making disciples, we are growing the kingdom of God among the kingdom of men. And there is no scriptural mandate or even an inference in scripture that we equate an earthly kingdom or nation as the kingdom of God. Am I making sense? You don't got to agree with me, but am I making sense? So if we are here, as Jesus said, I have come to bear witness to the truth. To live this truth first and then to proclaim it is comprehensive to every area of our life. We don't get to pick areas that we apply biblical truth to and ignore others. Now, all of us have some level of inconsistency and some hypocrisy in our lives. Please, please understand, I'm not calling you a hypocrite. I'm saying we all have levels of inconsistency and hypocrisy that need to be pointed out to us. That's, that's what we're supposed to do as the community of God and, and encourage each other and, and push each other. And this week I had a couple of people email me and a men's Bible study hit me with some things that pushed me. And I wanted to say, no, my way is right. But I had to step back and go, wait a minute, what do I have to learn here today? What am I missing? Where am I inconsistent? Where, where am I lacking courage? Where am I not applying the truth to all areas of my daily life? So that's what I'm trying to do in this. I'm, it's a moving target for me. Truth is not a moving target. My application of it is. Okay, you get that? This, Jesus isn't a way, a truth, a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So... This is where we enter into the affairs of the kingdom of man. The affairs of the kingdom of man that I must live in and be part of takes us into the political realm. And it is inescapable. 
We are political creatures. That's one th- email I got this week, and the, per- the people in this room, I don't want to point them out, but, but they pointed out to me, we must get political. And when, the reason I avoid politics is because of the, 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 the unbelievable meanness and unreasonableness that we have in it. And I don't want to bring that into mix with the gospel. Because the gospel, it belongs to the kingdom of God, of which then we must bring to the kingdom of man. And I never want the gospel associated with a political party. Do you hear me? But I belong to a political party. And I have deep political opinions. Again, let me read this out loud. I kind of just said it, but I want to make sure I got this stuff out. Currently, this political realm of the kingdom of man is filled with deep animosity, characterized by name-calling, and very poor argumentation based upon emotion, but not sound reasoning. Let me read that again. Currently, the political realm of the kingdom of man, of which we are all involved in some way, is filled with deep animosity, characterized by name-calling, and very poor argumentation based upon emotion, not sound reasoning. When we descend to this level of name-calling, animosity, and poor reasoning, we primarily become identified with a political party, and the message of the kingdom of God gets muted or even lost. Make sense? I'm opinionated about most things and arrogant enough to think my opinion is correct. I have deep convictions about many things in our world that fall into the realm of politics. Again, please listen to the end. So let me tell you who I am. I believe my beliefs are are formed, I hope, a lot by Scripture. By the way I was raised, by the culture I live in, by the friends I keep, we're all a conglomeration of those things. So let me tell you who I am. I am conservative in most of my convictions and libertarian in some. Don't tell me what to do. No offense, libertarians. I'm fiscally conservative about how money is spent I finally learned in my own finances how to be that way. But from the way our government spends our money, and I believe both parties, the the primary parties, have royally gone stupid in the way money is spent. I am for states' rights over an increasingly larger and larger federal government. I am for personal responsibility Stop blaming others for the consequences of your choices and my choices. They're on me. They're on you. These could all be expanded. I'm morally conservative. I value the life of a baby in the womb as sacred and believe that to have an abortion is to kill that child. I believe that human sexuality is a gift from God 
And specifically, as we talked about when we were in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that God has designed marriage between a man and a woman to come together, and the union of that becoming one is the act of sexual intercourse, and a natural result is children. We talked about that. That marriage, sexuality, and children belong together. Our world has separated them. And by the way, this isn't a party thing, a political party. Our world of every party has separated them as three distinct things, and I believe that incredible chaos has resulted because of it. We have turned God's gift into a self-absorbed mess. And when I say that, so let me go to the next one. Gender and biological sex are not unrelated categories, and they should not be separated. Now, understand, gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction are very real. Don't deny them. But redefining all categories to accommodate them is not the answer. We've brought unbelievable confusion. I don't know if you saw, I saw this cartoon this morning on the news. I shouldn't look at the news Sunday morning. I'm telling you, I've got to stop that. And it showed... It was a preschool lesson. It's a preschool lesson on color. Very colorful picture of um, um, a same-sex couple. And the man was pregnant. So, and this was to teach preschoolers about color. It wasn't about color. That takes me to my next category. I believe parents should be the strongest voice in children's education not the state. I could go on and on about my positions that I believe are, are largely taken from Scripture or their inferences and conclusions from Scripture and the way I was raised and the people I hang around with. Let's, let's, let's be honest about where we get our ideas. In light of, of these categories or these convictions of mine, I'm a registered Republican because I believe currently they closer, represent my beliefs closer than other parties. So, that's me. I'll come back to some of that in a minute. But let me give you a, a picture to take us back. That's how I try and live in the kingdom of man as representative of the kingdom of God. But if we primarily identify, if I primarily identify as a Republican with those issues and forget my higher identity as a, a child of the kingdom of God, I may descend into that critical attitude, name-calling, and poor reasoning to justify my positions. But let's remember, as each of us live in this kingdom of man, and we have these convictions. I bet if I put you up here one at a time and we took all day, you would give your positions on these things I just said. And you have, some of you would agree, probably many of you, some of you disagree. Um, but let me tell you your identity as a kingdom of God child. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that we are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. 
Okay? This world is the world of the kingdom of man. This earth is the world of the kingdom of man. We are to be light and salt. So as I have my deep convictions, and I bring them to bear in conversations and in the way I talk to people and the way I vote and all that, my first thinking is the conclusion of the, 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 conclusion of the vote or the election in November can't be my highest hope. And I have some great hopes for that month. I really do. But if that's my highest hope, I may be deeply disappointed and defeated. But if I realize as I live my life and engage the world as the kingdom, as a member of that kingdom of man, but I understand truly I am to be the light of the world, a world that is against God. I am to be the salt of the earth, this earth being populated with people who are against God. And my goal is not to condemn them. My goal is for them to see the beauty of our Savior. You with me still? Now, I don't know how far to push this salt of the earth, the light of the world. Because, you know, light can be so bright, it's, it's painful. Salt can be so, as far as, salt, salt is primarily in this culture is for preserving. They would rub meat. There's no refrigeration. They'd rub meat with it to preserve the meat. But they, they were not, it was not lost upon them that salt makes things taste good. But what happens when there's too much salt in food? Oh, it's repulsive. What is, what is so wonderful, you take, do you, who puts salt in their oatmeal? Who doesn't put salt in their oatmeal? Put some salt in it. You'll be surprised how good it tastes. <laughs> I'm serious. When I forget to put salt in, I meet and I go, oh, what is missing? Some salt is missing. But then I put a little too much and it's like, oh, in the trash. So, in this trying to figure out my role in each kingdom, I want to tell you, I will never, never tell you how to vote. I actually think it's an insult to your intelligence. You, you, know, you, you guys have a brain. If you follow Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, you have the spirit of God in you. You have the scriptures. You've got the people of God. Use that in your political processing. In fact, I, I got a ballot from Carson City in the mail the other day, and I'm going, I don't know most of these people. Do I leave it blank or do I go find some people I trust and say, help me understand who should be on our school board? That's one of the most important elections locally, in my opinion. So I want to know. I need the help of the people of God that know more than me. Do the hard work yourself to figure out who deserves to be in office. Know the scriptures. Know what candidates believe. I don't do very good at this. I need to do much better. If you want my perspective, ask me. But I'll never tell you what to do. Even though I'm a registered Republican, I will be adamant not to associate the Republican Party with the Christian faith. But I'll tell you that you have a responsibility as a citizen, the citizen of the kingdom of God to be the best citizen of the kingdom of man that you can be. But avoid what is called Christian nationalism. The idea that America is God's nation, we need to get back to it. It's, it's, it was never God's nation. It's a nation God blessed greatly. It's a nation that the early founders followed biblical principles, um, a biblical worldview. Many of them, we, we would say, were Christians today. If you really look deeply, they weren't Christians. They were deists. They were deists that did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but, but they were 
profoundly biblical in their worldview of what is good and right and wrong and all that. And we've moved far away from that. I don't believe that we're here to go back to that. We're here to go forward. What does forward look like? So, now, if I'm starting to ramble, I apologize. I've got so much here. I'm going to get into Scripture in a minute. Um, right now, we'll go to Scripture. So, in Bible study, men's Bible study, we were in Daniel chapter. What, what chapter were we in, Scott? Eight, nine, Matthew? Okay, we were in chapter nine. And in there, Daniel is confessing the sins of his, na- his own sins and the sins of his nation. Because his nation had, ter- Israel had turned from God and God sent them into captivity. So Daniel is confessing his own sins, of which th- th- Daniel never lists any of Daniel's sin. The book of Daniel never lists Daniel's sin. Daniel seems to be a pretty upright guy, but he knows who he is at the core, and that is a sinner. And so he's confessing his own and the sins of his nation that sent his nation into captivity of where he is now in Babylon. And so we were talking about it in men's Bible study, the idea of, of um, do we confess the sins of our nation or do we just point them out a lot um, and, and condemn people for them? Or do we, do we come into them and say, I'm part of this and confess the sins of our nation? Even though I may not personally be doing them, I'm part of this nation. So it's a conversation we had. And someone read this verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And it got me thinking. I thought a lot about this in the past, but it got me thinking again. So this is the context here of this verse. Go ahead and put that up there, Dean, if you would. The context of this is 2 Chronicles 7. Solomon has just completed the temple. That, that, the temple that, it's called the Temple of David, but it was really his son Solomon who built it. And God has, has um, blessed it and filled it with his glory. But he tells Solomon... You guys are going to turn your back on me. It's an exciting day today, guys, but you're going to turn your back on me. And so this is what God says in the midst of this conversation with Solomon. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so I've heard this quote many, many times over the 42 years I've been a Christian. 43 years, and, and there's a principle here about all countries. And that principle actually stated not in Second Chronicles, but Jeremiah, that if God says he's going to bring judgment against a nation because of their wickedness, and they turn from that wickedness, he'll relent from that judgment and bless that country. That applies to every country today, including the United States. But specifically, this is talking about Israel. If, go ahead and put it back up, Dean, if you would. If my people... It's people of Israel. We, we can't apply this wholesale to the United States of America as God's people. You understand that? But there is an application for us. Contextually, historically, this is Israel. But I would suggest there's an application to us today in the United States. Who are the people of God today? The churches. The body of Christ are the people. So let's, hopefully I'm not taking this too far out of context, but let's put us in here. If my people, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
First Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says that judgment begins with the house of God. Before God judges the world, he judges his own people. So why don't we start, whatever application we can take from this passage to our country and our world, let's start with us. What do we need to humble ourselves in? What do we need to repent of? What do we need to turn from wickedness? In our personal lives, in our corporate lives? I don't know how much you pay attention to the news. I, I'm, I'm poor to moderate. I, I read the news every morning, mostly headlines. And, um, but, but I don't go real deep. But a lot of the headlines I'm seeing lately are about the sins of the church in the secular press. The Southern Baptist Convention just printed a whole thing of 20 plus years of sexual abuse in their church that they have hidden. And they, they revealed names. But in that list, they also redacted names for whatever reason not to reveal the sexual predators. There's problems among the people of God, you guys. What do we need to turn from our wicked ways? Are we hypocrites in condemning our neighbors while we do the same thing? Remember Jesus teaching on, why are you so concerned to pull the log out of your brother's eye when you won't even take the speck out of, no, no, the speck out of your brother's eye while you have a log in your own? But I can see the speck in your eye really easy. Even through the logs in my eye, I can see the speck in yours. And dealing with your speck is way easier than dealing with my log. That's called hypocrisy. So aberrant sexuality is rampant in the church also. I want you to think about while we point our fingers at the LGBT community, how many of us or you in this room lived with your boyfriend, girlfriend before you got married or currently still doing it or sexually active with someone outside of marriage? or extramarital affairs, or I know no one in this room does this, but addicted to pornography. I shouldn't make a joke out of it because many in this room are. And it's a secret sin we have that we are utterly ashamed of. Since we won't talk about it, it still owns us as we point fingers at other people and say, how evil. We better turn from our own sins first. Have we forgotten what compassion is with those who are fallen? Have you ever heard the phrase, Christians kill their wounded? We're not very nice to each other when we sin. We really aren't, let alone to those outside the faith. But think of the Jesus catching the woman. Jesus didn't catch the woman in adultery. Someone else did and brought her to Jesus. That did, and we knew, you know the story that they didn't bring the man. If they caught her red-handed, they didn't bring the man. But they brought the woman. And what did Jesus do? He pointed out the sins of the people condemning her and then said to her, where are your accusers? This is in John 8. She goes, they're not here. They're gone. And he goes, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So he called her to live right, but had compassion upon her. I taught a class at Grace Church years ago on ethics. It was a Sunday school class on ethics. 
and we had different panels on when does life begin, when does life end, on, on all that kind of stuff, the death penalty, all these things. It was a great interactive class. I brought in different experts, had some debates. But because of my, my true belief that a baby in the womb is a human being from conception, that in that is to kill that human being. And I had mentioned at that time, 20 years ago, the amount of children who were aborted since Roe versus Wade. I forget the number, but it's, it's astronomical. And that was t 15 years ago probably I did this class. It was about 15 years because Teresa and I had just gotten married. And afterwards, and I, I was treating it as a kind of a hard, factual, kind of a cold thing. And afterwards, we went home, and Teresa said, you know, Tony, if what you say is true on the number of women who had a number of abortions that have happened, and she did the math somehow, there's a good chance that one in four women have had an abortion. In this room full of 30 people, half women, that means many of them have had abortion. And you had no compassion on them today. So that really slapped me that we have our convictions and our opinions that we believe is truth. Let's remember, truth without compassion does not help anybody. It helps nobody. Have we made, do we need to turn from this wickedness, have we made the blessings of God in this temporal world the most important thing in our life? Are we absorbed with our possessions, these blessings, and failed to realize that a major reason God gave them to us is that we would share them with others. Do you understand? We all live here in northern Lake Tahoe. So we understand the amount of money that is in our community. Do we not? Okay, and we all have enough to live here. We can always point to someone else. They have more. But I believe this. This isn't an overstatement. I, I, I don't have the actual numbers to do it, but I believe... The money of the Christian community in North Lake Tahoe, without much sacrifice, could alleviate extreme poverty in several cities of the world. But what do we choose to spend it on instead? Do you know one reason that God sent Israel into captivity? The primary reason is because they committed idolatry. But there was also reasons they forgot the poor. Has God blessed us with more than we need because we're supposed to have a heart for the poor? James chapter 1, I think verse 27, this is the epitome of religion, that we help widows and orphans in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world, to live a holy life and to care about the people who can't take care of themselves. That's why we're here. Have we shifted our blessings to our purpose as opposed to remembering, enjoy what God has given you. I really believe that. But be radical in sharing what God has given us too. Here's the last one I could do more, but maybe we need to turn from. Let me give it to you by way of an article I read you know, I told you last week, I think we flew to Denver two weeks ago because we had a granddaughter being born. And I read an article. I, Christianity Today sends me magazines about four times a year with the goal of getting me to subscribe. I kind of 
just read the freebies. But there was an article about 12 pages long on a survey of pastors who are a large percentage, I can't remember the numbers to be honest with you, but a large percentage of them want to quit the ministry. But they're not. But they're discouraged. And, and the article is more about, we have a church whose leaders are discouraged. What are we doing about it? The number one area of discouragement that pastors say they, the reason that brings them discouraged is because there's very poor commitment to minister by the people. People don't volunteer. That's the number one thing pastors were discouraged about. You come to church, but you don't serve. So I'm, I'm going to make this direct. I'm going to, instead of saying you, I'm going to say us. And this, this is, this is, this is, please, this is my heart. I have to include me because why do I do what I do? Oh, it's the calling of God. I, I hope so. But what if I wasn't paid to be here? What would I do? So I want to make sure I don't ignore the log in my eye when I point out the, the sliver in yours. But most of us in this room don't use our spiritual gifts and talents that God gave us to serve others. Why not? If you go around to any business right now, what do you see in the window? Help wanted signs. We could put a huge one in the church out here. And the ones in businesses want to pay you. We just want your time. But you were created, second, not second, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we are his workmanship. The idea of we are his craftsmen. He, he created us. He formed us. He molded us, gave us gifts, gave us talents so that we would step into the good works he's called us to do. Why aren't we doing them? So this, this is, I, I want us to, to bring to bear on us. As we point the finger at our world that is truly going to hell, I personally don't like the way America is going. I do believe that a political process can help change some things. I do. I have hope that some right people in office get some out, can change some directions. I, I believe that's true. So, so people, get out and vote. You're a citizen of this country. You've been given a privilege. You've been given a responsibility. You've been given a voice. The one, we come together, search the scriptures, look at the issues, ask what's important to God, and we vote accordingly. We can change some things, but it's always temporal. It's always temporal till the next election cycle. And we've all seen that. If you've been around long enough, you've seen it go back and forth, back and forth. They're not our hope. But it is an instrument to move forward this country in a good way. But first, if there's a future of God's restoration of the United States to something good, I think the church needs to remember who they are as the body of Christ and turn from our selfish ways and remind ourselves of our identity as children and servants of God to be instruments in his hands to go into a broken, sinful, 
hurting, even depraved world with the message of Jesus Christ. That's the introduction to the sermon. <laughs> I'm serious, but I told Dean. De Dean's a young man doing the slides back there. Everyone say hi, Dean. Hi. He's wave wave waving at you. Um, Dean is the most important person in this whole ministry, right, Dean? Yeah, we, we were teasing him earlier, so I wanted to affirm Dean. Um, I wanted to tell you about different memorials in Scripture, how memorials are designed to remember the past to point you to the future. Remember the past to give you an action plan for the future. And so biblically, there's lots of memorials. Some very important ones are the, are the Passover, where God, God delivered Israel from Egypt, brought them out into the wilderness, then gave them this meal called the Passover meal. Where, where you, eat, you sacrifice a lamb, you have unleavened bread, and you're to do this every year at the same calendar date to remember your slavery in Egypt and the freedom God has taken you to. Okay? That, that was the reason for the memorial. Remember the past, you were slaves, and God is moving you forward to the freedom of the, of the promised land. And the, the, what you get, by remembering the past, I remember my identity for the future. And regularly, Israel didn't do it. There's another one that as Joshua takes them into the promised land, and, and the, it's, it's springtime and the, and the river is flowing fast. You can't cross it, the Jordan River. So God stops the water. Incredible miracle. And the children of Israel walk through the Jordan River, through the rocks, on dry land. And then God tells them, pick up 12 stones. One person from each of the 12 tribes, pick up 12 stones, put them on your shoulder, carry them and stack them on the shore. They actually did some in the river and on the shore. And that's a memorial to remind you what God has done. So every time you go down there fishing or swimming, you see that pile of rocks, say, ah, that reminds me of what God did and who I am as a citizen of Israel. But the most important one for us, we celebrate next week, and that's the Lord's Supper. So I'm glad it's not this week because I want us to have time for this next seven days to think through if Second Chronicles applies today to this country, it applies to us first as Christians, that we humble ourselves, that we seek his face, that we pray to him, and we turn from our wicked ways so that we can become those instruments in his hand that will have an effect both for the kingdom of God seeing people come to faith, eternally saved, and become disciples of Jesus, which then affects the kingdom of man as there are more people who are truly salt and light. So, Jesus says, or rather, Paul says, quoting Jesus in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I read it every month. I receive from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial that we are to do regularly. We do it twice a month there. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you drink this bread, excuse me, Eat this bread and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If a memorial remembers the past thing, Jesus Christ came as a human being, 
God became human, lived that perfect life, became our Lamb of God. Our sins were transferred to him. He died on the cross, was buried. He rose again. And his righteousness is now given to me when I believe in him. He has changed my heart. He has put his spirit within me to create a new identity in me and a new purpose. And that purpose is to go into the world and represent him and take the message of hope to the whole world. Started with my neighbor to cross town, cross the state, country, the world. And to be that salt and light he has called us to be as we serve one another and love our neighbor as ourself. So next week as you come for the Lord's Supper, I want this week to be a time of reflection and prayer in light of 2 Chronicles 7.14 to humble ourselves before him this week and say, God, whatever your political views are as a citizen of the kingdom of man, God, I want a different world to live in. I'm one person, God, that belongs to a group of your people that has some influence. I want to be used properly by you to influence our country to righteousness. But show me this week what I must turn from to be that instrument in your hands. The next week when we come together, we're not going to ask for testimonies of what you turn from. But I'll presume that you'll do this and the Spirit of God is in you and he'll tell you. Then next week we will come together to take communion with hopefully a renewed passion for him, a renewed vision of who we are in this world, and the influence we could have, both in conversations with our neighbor and at the polls, and however you choose to get involved in the process. Some of you were called to be very active in the political process. Some of you were called to run for office. School board, school board, school board. So, so I have a lot more to say, but that clock says 11.10. Stand with me, please. Happy to, I um, only saw one person walk out, by the way. Happy to um, ask, answer any questions this week. It's hard to get into a long conversation out there. But if you want to say, hey, I, I have some concerns I don't agree with, you're out of line, or I really, whatever you want, email me, call me this week. Um, it's important, my communications this week, that first were a little, didn't like, made me stop and say, wait a minute, I got to rethink. So this message today, you're my victims in me rethinking, and hopefully I keep thinking and thinking and thinking. We've never arrived. We're always in process. Father, thank you for your patience with each one of us in this room. Thank you that um, you'll never leave us or forsake us. Also, thank you, Lord, for the truth of Hebrews chapter 12, that as our loving Father, you discipline us to bring holiness. So whatever logs in our eyes, Lord, we need to turn from, whatever wickedness that we are secretly doing or attitudes we need to change, God, root them out this week. So, Lord, we can be the people you've created us to be. We love you. And in 
Christ's name we give you glory. In this last song, Lord, we hope that, that um, we raise our voices and you are truly honored. Amen.